Jen, what do you have? Like one more week? And then you have three summer. and a half more days, everyone. It's Memorial Day when we're recording. Oh, my gosh. And the last day of school is a half day. So that's a, just a waste of a day. No, but it's beneath everyone, it feels. You know, you got to get the kids to clean out their lockers and such. Oh, is that what you do? You know, I don't know. Like that I don't remember what half days were for. Exactly. Well, it, nevertheless, it's what's happening. What I do me. know is that as a mother, I'm like, oh my god. Oh yeah, completely. I gotta get this kid to school and then remember to get her home. <laughs> like I might as well like, just sit outside an in hour front, and like a, a weirdo stalker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. So, well, that's fun. It is fun. It's very Are you doing fun. Like, what else do you do this week? Are you showing the kids a movie? No, I'm not. <laughs> we are. St- you know what? I like to work up till the very end, but the deal I make with the kids is... You get what you pay for. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I have, like, what I tell the kids is, like, in the last weeks of school, like, I need to do something every day, but that something might just take... My class periods are 50 minutes. That might just take 25 or 30 minutes, and then you can have time, right? So it's kind of like a like a little mm. bit of a carrot and stick. Like, just be good for this 25 minutes while mm-hmm. we talk about... Totalitarianism, for example, mm-hmm. Stalin, Napoleon, Animal Farm, and then sure. so it'll I love be fine. That you end with Animal Farm. It's so real, God. It's terrifying. I know. <laughs> I reread it because you've taught it every year we've known each other, and I read it. I feel like I should have told you this, but I reread it about a year and a half ago, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, no, it's like pulling. It's ninety pages of terror. I mean, really, yeah, I don't, horror. I don't know why you yeah. exist when you can just read Animal Farm. <laughs> There's this great moment. I think everybody here knows that I'm a you know my like secret shame is how much I love Aaron Sorkin, and there's this great episode of the West Wing. So the president on the West Wing has three daughters and like there comes a moment where like there's like discussion about who is his favorite and (laughs) you know and he's so frustrated because he's so like human and a dad and there is no favorite and he loves them all and then he is so frustrated then there's a pause and he goes King Lear is a good play. (laughs) (laughs) And literally when I was reading Animal Farm when I finished it I was like oh this is a good book. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's good. Terrifying right? and good. I think it's also, we don't talk at length about Animal Farm. Here's the other thing that's really fun about it. Like I mostly, I teach seventh grade, everybody. I mostly read books that are like YA or, I mean, we read the Young Reader's Edition of the Trevor Noah book. But like Animal Farm is really like, even though it's a small book, it's their first like big book. And that's kind of a fun way to end. Like, yeah, right. From here you're on out, you're reading something. the big things. So yeah, big thinking. I love it. Welcome, everyone, to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and critic. And uh, here at Faded Mates, we, you know, we also read the big things. <laughs> we do. And have we have big feelings about, about the books that we read. And big feelings about parts of the books that we read. And uh, that's what today's interstitial is about, everyone. Yes. So this week we're going to be talking about prologues and epilogues. This is yet another. We started our Patreon. There's a Discord and there's a channel that's just basically like episode suggestions. Which honestly was just inspired of us. <laughs> I because know. I was like, there are no more ideas. Five so years we in, about we're everything. like, what else should we talk about? And they've come up with some great <laughs> the ideas. The other day, wait, can I tell everybody yes. what I recommend, what I offered up the other day as an idea? And <laughs> <laughs> the other day I was like, I don't know, maybe we should do like books with dogs. And, Eric, and I just and was like, Jen was like, no. 
I just was like, no, I have nothing. She to didn't offer. even say the words. She just looked at me. Yeah, I was just like, if you know, looks could kill. Sarah you would guys, be. You can imagine. Yeah, I have nothing to offer. I was like, get your pets out of my romance novels. Okay. Pets are hard to write. Here's what I'll say about this since we'll never do one. Sure. Pets are incredibly difficult to write because you really should not put characters on the page unless you're going to use them for value, for plot or character value. And just owning a pet does not make you special. <laughs> and that is, I think, how Jen and I both feel. I think I speak for both of us yeah. when I say. Yeah, you got to do something with those pets. And sometimes I'm like, I get rid of these baby fucking goats. Now, that being said, there is a family of foxes living in Millennium Park, which is a very urban oh, park downtown. And I'm like, well, this seems really cute to have the baby foxes living in Millennium Park. Oh, but see. also... Maybe the baby foxes are unsafe in Millennium Someone Park. out there is like, I'm going to write a book about baby foxes. Oh, please. Good luck to you. <laughs> Sarah will read it. Listen, I will read it. I love anything. I love all that shit. That's I where know. we differ. I'm like, oh, there's a weird animal. I'm totally going to read that. You said, but you started a Twitter account? Oh, I was going to. I was like, oh, maybe I'll get used to Instagram by having one about cats and romance. And then immediately I was like, oh, I forgot about it. Romance novels that have cats. Because everybody wants a fucking dog. Like, my God. They need to it's be walked true. so many times a day. Well, because it's, it's manimals just leading, just seeping into everything else. You cannot go away on vacation no. for a quick weekend getaway with your new hot lover with a Jennifer, dog. You have to take them, who are you find somewhere to, to, right to, now? Find somewhere to put them. asshole who lives in my house <laughs> and just eats, like, is so good about not eating shit. Until one day he eats an entire bag of what's called rose tone. You don't garden either. I don't. I love myself. A chorus of gasps just went up. Christina Lauren listens to this podcast and so does Kate Claiborne. And I know both of them are like, (gasps) Uh, rose tone is like a fertilizer. But luckily I had like a bad thing for a dog to eat. Super organic rose tone because I live in Brooklyn and uh, he got hold of a bag of it. It smelled like poop. He ate it. And then I basically just, like, had to watch him for two days. Anyway, that's well, my story about that. Exactly. Dogs, dogs aren't sexy. <laughs> no, they aren't. Neither are babies, really, honestly. But you did so. start, you sort of, oh, you theorized about cats and romance for a little while, and you were like, I'm going to start a Twitter account, and I put a cat into Knockout because I was like, I'm going to put a cat into this book on principle so that Jen can see a cat in a romance novel. And because Knockout, people don't know this yet, but Knockout is, I mean, they they should know because name is Destiny. But uh, Knockout is dedicated to Jen. So exciting. I have some big plans for this, actually. Oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) I mean, I think I'm going to have to frame it. I'm not even going to lie to you. Everybody, like, in the future... Like, Sarah just looks at me and, like, my wall, but behind it's going to have, like, the cover and I think, like, the inscription because I'm pretty excited about it. It's pretty great. It's your first one. My first, probably my last one. You're going to get others. Fine. That's fine. Uh, The point is, I put a cat in the book and then, and he's, (laughs) the cat is relevant to the scene. And then I was like, what the fuck am I going to do with this cat now? And luckily, the cat doesn't belong to the hero, so it's fine. Yeah, the cat just takes off. Great. All right, Sarah. That's my story about cats. So epilogues and prologues is what we're going to be talking about today, which I thought was a really fun topic. People have very strong feelings. Listen, I already feel bad that we're not, we did not, we wrote that, but you wrote, 
not me. I did not. Jen did the, like yeoman's work, as my mom would say, <laughs> and wrote down. I don't even know what a yeoman is, to be honest. It feels Someone like a word I down. should know the definition of, considering my career. Then, but I think, yeah. Whatever. Anyway, did a bunch of work, wrote all of the ideas down, and then I feel, I'm already feeling bad that we didn't like remember everyone's name. But we're sorry. You're out there. We love you. Look what we're doing for you. Sometimes it feels like it just like coalesces. Like mm-hmm. sometimes a single person says it, but anybody, sorry, that's not my ministry. I'm like, I'm going to write down the idea, but then forget to say. No, listen, that wasn't criticism. I just, you know, sometimes feel Catholic guilt, as we discussed on the last episode. Yes. Um, okay. So. Sarah, I have a thought before we start. And then I would like you before to confirm we start, because we're you, 10 minutes in. Whatever. That's not the start. <laughs> that's just banter. Okay. Here, Sarah, here's my thought. And you've written these. So mm. I, I, this is what I have. I, I wrote it down in the middle of the night because sometimes I wake up with ideas. That prologues are about plot, but epilogues are fan service. Oh, I think that's 1,000% true. Okay. And every once in a while, you'll meet one that is a little A little of both. But, but this is why I'm always surprised when people are like, I don't read prologues or epilogues. I was like, okay, I could see. Erin, late of heaving bosoms. Yes. I could see saying I'm not going to read epilogues because they're fan service, but prologues are plot. How can you not read a prologue? Um, I have so many thoughts. I hope okay, so. Okay, listen. Before we get into all of this, what I want to say is there are very serious ideas about prologues and epilogues out there in both literature and romance sure and in general anytime there is a conversation where people have serious very intense ideas about a thing right a structure everybody's wrong (laughs) or everybody's right or that yes well half glass glass half empty glass half full yeah i mean we're both fuzzy right now listen just be it's fine it's just it, all of this is nonsense, so we're just going to talk because obviously both of us have very strong ideas. Yeah. But generally, the rules that I hear the most, and you correct me if I'm wrong because you are out there in these romance streets <laughs> hearing people talk a lot. True. Um, the general rules in literature are like never write a prologue, which Maybe. seems they exist for a reason, everyone. Agree. Yes, and then in romance, there is a very particular discussion that comes up about epilogues and babies. And so, yes, yes everyone, this is going to be the baby log episode where we really unpack what the fuck is happening in there. Do you want to talk about prologues first and then epilogues? Or we I mean, just, it would make I mean, sense. Makes sense. We it would be hilarious if we went chaos the around when yes. the reverse. But. Everybody, earlier I said we're two Fozzies because I saw this really funny tweet that was like, every podcast needs one Kermit and one Fozzie. Remember? And I sent it to Wait, the Wait, wasn't that on the Discord? Well, I sent it to the Discord, the Discord and then I sent it to Eric and Sarah. But the funniest thing is people were like in the Discord were like, I know which one is which. And then someone was like, Eric is Kermit and Sarah and Jen are both Fozzie. And I was like, <laughs> I think that's the right answer. And then someone else said, Fozzie always comes with a plan. Yeah. And then it just goes fully off the rails. Sure. And I was like, that does sound like us. Yeah, An hour with Jen and Sarah. But a lot of people said you were the Kermit because you come with a lesson plan. Yeah, I know. It's true. Everyone, by the way, I was a little hurt by that because one time I came with a whole chart. You have come with so many charts and plans, Sarah. It's fine. <laughs> you also do actually write these. I'm just full of shit. Okay. So here's what I said. I think prologues can do one of three things. 
But I, I'm open to there being more. This is just where I stopped making my list. <laughs> um, backstory. Yep. Lord of Scoundrel style. Yes. Uh, an inciting incident. But often that's also in the past, right? So thematically yep. something in the past. Casino series style. Right. Or an unusual setup. Sure. Bare knuckle bats- bastard style. See? You've done them all. Well, I didn't write Lord of Scoundrels. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, sure. But-, but I'm sure I have done them all. Yeah. Nine rules is backstory. Surprising absolutely no one who's ever read one of my books. I love a prologue. I love a prologue. I think that, ro- that rule is really dumb. And yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that I always write a prologue. In fact, my current book does not have a prologue, which is interesting because the other two books in the series do. Yes. And you are also a fan of, like, the series prologue. Mm-hmm. Well, that I have come to because, well, that's a bare knuckle bastards structure. I mean. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there are, I think those are the three versions. There are probably others. Someone out there is shouting at their, you know, their, their iPad. Um, But yeah, so I think, I think in romance, you can't do prologue. Anytime anybody talks about prologues in romance, they talk about Lord of Scoundrels, right? Sure. Which people often reference as the prove the exception that proves the rule of you should never use a prologue because that prologue is technically perfect right we yes. talk about it a ton in the lord of scoundrels episode i wish now that we are having this conversation that we had had this conversation with loretta so that she mm. could have said like yes i chose yep. that prologue for a reason um but that's all character work right like it's all it sets right. up it tees up all of his damage Yes. So that we are, as a reader, instantly forgiving of what he is about to do. Because then he's like a real asshole to her for yeah. 50% of the book. Yes. Um, what other books do do it okay. like that? So I have I have two other books that I think of as having perfect prologues. Now, I yeah. want to talk about yours because I really I like I want to talk about mine, too. too. You know, I, well, every, everybody knows I don't like to talk about my books, but... Like, yeah, when we have conversations like this, it's hard not to think about, like, what I was of doing. Of course. So I think Forbidden by Beverly Jenkins has a perfect oh, prologue. that's a great one. Because, okay, so if you have not read this, Ryan Fontaine is, uh, it's eight, 1865 in Georgia. The Civil War has just ended. Mm-hmm. He uh, was a slave. His, his, the owner was his father, Right. Yeah. And he returns to this like burned out husk of a plantation. And this it's hard to tell on like a book. This is a very short prologue. Shorter, my guess is maybe than Lord of Scoundrels. I only have an ebook. And in this prologue, so many things get laid down, but essentially he finds th- his uh father's like wife, right? who was like running the plantation and she's like, oh, you're passing, right? She sees him wearing a union uniform and he is kind of like looking. She's like, what happened to Andrew? That's his half brother, right? His white half brother. Mm -hmm. And then there's also mention of his sister who's enslaved, right? So, and you know, it's kind of like what happened to these people, which is referencing to some other, uh, especially his sister, other uh, was one of the Levesque books. But it essentially ends with him deciding or telling the the reader, essentially, that he's going to go west and he's going to pass for white. Mm -hmm. And the entire prologue 
it's so amazing. It gives you every, just like Lord of Scoundrels, it really gives you everything about his character Mm -hmm. at the same time as you completely understand his full backstory, which, of course, you're going to need to know moving forward. Yes. That's a technically perfect prologue because it reveals something to the reader that he is going to keep from everyone else in the book. Yes. And yes. we talk a lot about secrets. It's one of the challenges that um, that often people have with uh, uh, tense, like per- first person. Being in first person POV is very difficult, right? Because you can't keep secrets from the reader. And what's interesting about this is that Bev in that book makes a really interesting choice, which is to reveal to the reader from the very jump that uh, the hero is passing. But he does not reveal it to the heroine, and he does not reveal it to the entire town that will then become their community, right? Yes. And so in that prologue, she is setting a, like, she is really, like, empowering the reader in a fascinating way. Agree. Um, And I don't know, because I'm a, I'm a white lady, so... You know, I don't 100%. This is not really my lane at all. Yeah. But over the course of the book, I wonder if that book would have landed the same way if the reader had also been given the information at the end. Like, I feel like it's a betrayal of trust that Bev makes a very intentional choice to place in the prologue. What's fascinating is all these people who don't don't read prologues. Oh, God, I can't even imagine. Like that critical information, right? Yes. Yeah, right. And why he's doing it and, and like, his background. Like, he and his brother, like, went off and – I mean, it it's so perfect. I mean, exactly for that way. Bev White's, writes a great prologue, but she's a good example of somebody who only does it when it's necessary. Yes. There right. is no prologue to Indigo and there could be. You know, she – there's there are so many of her books – I mean, my most recent favorite of hers is Wild Brain. And I think, you know, there are so many of her books where there is so much information that could have been given. And instead, she keeps it for the story. Right. But in this case, you need to know it, right? Because otherwise, his behavior towards her would be inexplicable or it would be monstrous. But instead, we see him as really being torn now between like this future he's thought he wanted right versus the one that he now realized he wants with her yes it's awesome like it's really good and i found myself also thinking a lot about again with like lord of scoundrels and your books too about how i really value a prologue in historical because i often feel Mm. like the other thing that they are doing is There's some piece of literal historical information that you need to know. And somehow it's in the prologue that this like literal factual information is going to be delivered to you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Because, and I think this is relevant, Christina Lauren's Something Wilder has a prologue. Mm -hmm. And if they are prologue writers, I don't. I don't think they usually are. I think. I can think of another one, um, which doesn't mean they're not. But something Wilder's prologue is 10 years prior to the situation um, and it is to the to the plot of the book. And it is the two main characters like in love. Yes. Like they are. They are together. wildly in love with each other. Right. Yeah. 
And the choice to put that on the page is does it does a lot of plot work, right? It does trope work too. We've seen what they can be together. Mm-hmm. We have seen. Um, so then, when they start ten years later, when the book begins ten years later with them apart, and then they come back together, and is it is it Lily the main yes. character? I think the the main character is Lily. Um, I'm sorry. I literally am flying by the seat of my pants today, you guys. I have not done any, you know, That's book That's how prep. we are. When the book opens and Lily has lost really everything, right? Her father's lost and Leo is gone. We are given this sort of sense of like she had she had a taste of everything once before. But, and this is a big but, and this is why I think prologues work in fantasy and in historical, but not as often in contemporary, because... Um, what actually is going on here is they are teeing up an adventure, right? This is a something wilder is like closer to a historical than we often see in contemporaries. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. That's a good point, right? So we have so what it they're going to leave the modern world behind in, exactly. a, in a lot of ways, right? It's a road trip, right? So they are yeah. going. They're going to have to road trip, you know, across. It's it's a road trip trope on horseback, but anyway, it's great. I mean, I think historicals lean into the wackiness yes. of romance. I mean, they're not wacky traditionally, but they're, it's an easier sell to say, like, this is a world that you are not comfortable with. You haven't read before. I'm going to tell you a story. And in order for you to understand how this story works, here are some things you're going to need to know. And it is like, I mean, I think... Lorraine Heath does a great prologue. I think, um, you know, I think a lot about, um, you know, Julia Quinn has written some really beautiful prologues. Um, Sophie Jordan loves a prologue. And yeah, these are all historical writers. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Novelty Books, creators of the limited edition summer book box, Shelf Assured, which is centered around body confidence, empowerment, and self-love. These three friends, Ashley, JC, and Maxie, met many years ago while working in retail. They discovered a shared love of books, and now they are bringing it to us in the Novelty Book Company box. This is the cutest thing I've ever seen. Novelty, of course, is usually refers to an item that's unusual or uh, unusual or original, but Novelty, T-E-A, is because their literary-inspired offerings are carefully curated and intentional. They pair secondhand books that they source on a theme along with- To reduce waste. I know. Love it. And with complimentary tea and then additional novelty items from small businesses that fit the theme of each box. This is a terrific gift or right to someone you love or to yourself because you love yourself, which is the entire theme of this month's box. I love it. Novelty partners with local women or minority-owned small businesses that are keeping purpose top of mind for all the products in the box. And as you can tell, Jen and I think this is the coolest. You can find them at their website, NovelTBooks.co, or on Instagram, also at NovelTBooks.co, and check out everything about this month's self-assured book box. Confidence in yourself and confidence in your shelf. Thanks to Novelty Books for sponsoring this week's episode. I think it really captures something about the way... uh, 
I think about my own life, mm. which is that there are like these bellwether moments, right? These moments at which had something gone a different way, my life would have been different, right? Yeah. And sure. I think what a prologue is really capturing is like, okay, this moment happened. And because of that, we can have the rest of the story, right? Yeah. And I I really like that. I think that's really cool. I'm going to give you another, the other, the third perfect prologue I think that exists is is, is in a contemporary, and it's Love at First by Kate Claiborne. <gasps> I was, it's so funny. I was going to talk about Kate with epilogues, but yeah. Right? And here's why, everybody. So it starts off with, this is a Romeo and Juliet. If you listen to our episode with Kate when this book came out, it's like a, not a retelling as much as an homage. It's not like plot-wise, right? A retelling. But the two main characters, essentially when they're teenagers, their family members are like kind of, you know, aunts or uncles or, you know, older family members live in the same apartment building. And there's this like near miss where they almost meet each other. Mm. She's standing up on the third floor balcony, of course. He's down below. And he gets called away before they really meet. And then they don't actually meet for until they're adults, right? And it's this thought, and I don't know if I'm like reading this right, or maybe Kate said it, or it's in my brain, is like, had they met as teenagers, it would have been a disaster. Yeah. Like they weren't ready to meet. They would have been drawn to each other. Like that same whatever that was going to bring them together would have brought them together, but in a way that would have been a tragedy. But because they meet then at 30 or whatever. Right. Broken hearts. Right. Then they can actually meet at a time where who they are can be right for each other. And I think it's like such a clever way to show what the book is trying to do. Right. So here's a prologue where, again, like, again, it's like the it's like the opposite of what I just said. Right. Like it's this like really pivotal moment where they don't meet. But if they had met, everything would have been different, but in a bad way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I also think that there is, um, you know, that is a perfect example of um, a prologue that really, like, sets a world, like, establishes a world. I mean, Kate does such careful world building in her contemporaries. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find that many other contemporary authors who are able to just like really suck you into a fantasy world like to like us there that particular prologue also feels like oh yeah like myth making you're like yeah you're inside something really stunning in that prologue um but i think that that is also that's gets to what you were saying that there's there is a way there is a whole genre of prologues that are really telling telling a story in themselves and establishing like This is the story you are about to read. Yeah, right. So I want you to talk about series setting prologues. Here's like a funny story. I was convinced that I was going to talk about The Boyfriend Project by Farrah Roshan. I was convinced Uh that it was a prologue where the three of them meet and realize that they're all dating the same guy and that's how they become friends. But it's not. It's chapter one. And I was like, oh. So it's also really interesting when you're kind of convinced that the setup happens in a prologue. And instead, it's like, no, we're just going to hit the ground running. Everything comes from here. Yeah, it's the beginning of the whole story, and the story is however many books, right? Right. I mean, I also think, look, when people say don't write a prologue, you're just writing chapter one, like, a lot of writers have taken that to heart. Um, It is not uncommon for you to read a book where chapter one is a prologue. 
And then, like, chapter two is ten years later. And it's just because that shit is in our heads. Like, well, in this case, the transition to, like, the it's not ten years later, though. So I can see why it was chapter one. I mean, but it's almost like that exception that, like, it's worth thinking about, right? Like, I was like, oh, it just really does launch them right into the story. There's not a sense of needing like a breath before like the main story starts but it's really interesting to think about like not not every book does need a prologue and i think that's like a good or every series right yeah i mean i think about um tracy livesey's girls trip series has a similar situation where the first chapter is the friends it may not be it might be actually right it's not actually i think the i think it's like Chapter two is when it tees up all the friends who will be part of Girls Trip. So that's not. But um, anyway, wait, so I have written. Yes, I have written many of them. What would you like to talk about? I would like to talk about your transition to a series prologue because I think those are interesting. Yeah, I didn't do that for a while. Bare Knuckle Bastards was the first. I don't know. You know, I so the Casino series, each of the moments, the prologues are each the most. no. The Casino series is everyone, every prologue is the moment that they fell, like, out of grace, right? So that's a separate thing. That's like an inciting incident for each of the books and then arguably for the series as a whole. But no, Bare Knuckle Bastards is a series. It was conceived, like, fully formed. Like, there were going to be three brothers and a sister. And I, I mean, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but the idea came from this idea of, like, what happens if all you've ever wanted was a son? Like, it, like you need an heir. You're that right. kind of dude. And you get three illegitimate heirs, like, three illegitimate sons, and a, the only legitimate heir is a daughter. And, like, how does that – and, like – you know, whatever. So I came up with this idea that like this, this father would have been, you know, deeply, deeply horrible to his children, to these, to these boys, um, kind of Hunger Games style. And then I was like, <laughs> I wanted to feel like fairy tales. The first book in that series is a retelling of Rumpelstiltskin. And I had this idea that I wanted the whole series to like really feel like you were in a fairy tale world. And so I conceived of like, well, wouldn't it be great if, like, all three of these boys were sired by different mothers and they were all born? I mean, the beginning of that prologue, and I haven't read it in a million years, is something like, you know, they were born on the same day, at the same hour, on the same minute, but to three different mothers. And so no one knew who the oldest was. They all had the same birthday. And then it was – and that prologue uh, is not entitled prologue. It just says the past, right? Yeah. Right. And then I want it to – I really wanted it to feel like out of time, like you were reading – like you were like reading a fairy, fairy tale. Like a fairy tale. Right. And I mean I would be remiss if I didn't say that that is, you know, partially inspired by, you know, the many, many, many books by Elizabeth Hoyt that I read mm. long before I became a writer um, that I love because Elizabeth Hoyt sort of does that too. Every book begins with this sort of fairy tale – that then she threads through the whole book. So it's slightly different. It's a slightly different structure, but she does the same thing where she starts the book and sets you, starts you, sets you on a path that is really about like a, a myth that you're about to, you know, become a part of. Um, and then I think the epilogue of 
Duchess of uh, Daring and the Duke is, is entitled The Future. Like, I think they are bookends, right? They are bookends. You have seen you have seen the present and everything else is sort of around the edges. Like a little Vaseline on the edges. Well, it's also interesting because I was convinced that Sophie's book was like a prologue where she pushes yeah. him into the pond or whatever where they it's come not, across him. It? And it's not. It's no. chapter one. It's chapter one because it's not it's not Serafina's book. It's Sophie's book. Exactly. I mean, that book, but that is the inciting incident for the whole series. Yes. Right. But it was interesting because it's it, and that's it. It's like had it been Serafina's book, it would have had to be the prologue, but it wasn't. Right. It's all frame. It's so it's really interesting to. When thinking about it, when I went back and looked, I was like, oh, I'm sure that's a prologue. And I was like, oh, no, it's not. No, because it happens like the day. It's, it's all happening on the same day. For me, and look, this is different for everybody. For me, it feels like there is time involved in prologues. Yes, I agree. Because if it's not, if it doesn't come a year, you know, some amount of time, not even a year, but if it doesn't come some amount of time earlier, then what are we even doing? Yeah, Okay, so maybe this is a good chance to transition to epilogue because problems get compounded with time, right? Pain, we say, goes away, but doesn't always, right? So, like, I really like the idea of, like, okay, so the prologue happens in some amount of time. And epilogues can be about time, too, in the future, but it cannot be the way that a problem gets solved, Mm -mm. right? No. In fact, I just this morning read one where I was like, Hang on a second. Uh, wait, but before we go to epilogues, I just want to say one other thing. You t- you talked about like series structuring prologues, right? And I I can't let this go without talking about the Leona series, Adriana series, because this is not about time. This is a really interesting structure, right? Because we meet the fairy. The pro is it a prologue? It might not be a prologue. Oh no, it is. It's actually almost like a part one. Like it has an entirely. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about this, too. Yes. Okay. So let's. Okay. This makes sense. Okay. So that begins with. Wait, the prologue is them on the boat. Yeah. It's marked prologue, at least in the Kindle version. Okay. This is also a little fan service for readers. Um, These structures. And, you know, I have written these, too, at the beginning of a series. And it. Where you sort of see all the characters together. Yes. And you right? know who's going to be. Stephanie Lawrence. I don't can't. I mean, it's the Stephanie Lawrence, like, here are all the <laughs> sinister men together. Yes. Fine. Or like, you know, I think there's a Sabrina Jeffries series where, like, it's it's just like, you know, all the, all the single yeah. Dukes club. And they're, like, hanging out together in their club. And right? Like, yeah, there they and, are. And it's like, it's going to be all these jerks. And there, and there's always the one who's like definitely going to fall the hardest, and they're definitely going to be the last book, right? Oh yeah. And so the the structure of of a prologue for the, in that sense is a is real romance fan service. Yes, you know to use your term, um, because we don't need to see them all on the boat. Like we don't need to see them all in the club, but like we need. To know, but I mean, first of all, a lot of information comes out of that prologue, and we do need to sort of see them all together and understand why they're all there. But making it a prologue is Adriana saying, I love romance novels. Yes. And I know that you, as a romance reader, are going to enjoy this. Like, yeah. this is me putting a mark in the sand and saying, 
very proudly like what you are about to read is a series of romance novels yes. about these great women and as a reader you're just delighted by it yeah. um and i think it's really interesting because when you over the course of your career as a romance writer every once in a while you run up against somebody who read your book who do- has never <coughs> read a romance novel before oh god and i'm sure they're like what's this and they're like well i hang on a second i finished this and then i realized the brother is the next one and, and it's like, like oh you I know. you're welcome <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> so yeah. i mean i love it i mean i you know we've talked so much over the years about how much i love like the ways that romance really closes yeah you know, is insular for readers and like wakes right. at readers and gives readers yeah, that's really smart. What yeah. they want. And Adriana really did that in that book. Yeah, I love that. Or like the prologue is like the wedding. And you know that like <gasps> all the people, right? Like yes. give it to me. Put it right yeah. in my veins. Yeah. And, every, and then, well, I think I've said this too, that if you go to Kindle and you turn on the like most oh, yeah. the most commonly highlighted parts of your of a romance novel, often like one of the most commonly highlighted parts is just a reference to another couple. Like it's just like the that. two names next to each other. And it's just because readers are like, oh, I got to go get that one. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, uh, romance is amazing. I love it so much. Now. It's unmatched. Okay. Everybody read prologues is what we're saying. All right. Now let's talk yeah, about Yeah. Don't epilogues. skip them. They're amazing. Yeah, they're doing work. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like, prologues are really doing oh, – if they're – if they're, they need to exist, right? And, of course, I'm sure we've all read books where we're like, that didn't really need to be there. But it, when they do, like, they are doing important work for plot, almost always for character. And yeah. you should read the prologues. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Juniper Butterworth author of the Sea Goblin series. The second book in the series is available. It's called Bewitched, being a history of affection, enchantment, and house cleaning. (laughs) These books sound so incredibly charming. Where we pick up in this series, and it's a standalone, so you don't have to know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, is that uh, the protagonist, Haven, has uh, her pirate ship has wrecked uh, just below a goblin village. And now all of the people who worked on the pirate ship, all the pirates, if you will, uh, now live on land. And um, Haven is the mother of a very rare goblin baby. And there is a problem with this because the ship wrecked because it was cursed. And now the curse has transferred itself, they fear, to the child, to her child, which is not great. So they are looking for literally any way to reverse this curse. Um, Luckily, the village comes with a mysterious and somewhat sexy sea witch who claims that she is the only one who is able to break the spell. But Haven and her daughter have to be guests, have to live with her. They have to come and live in her little strange house on her little tiny island as the witch summons powerful magic to reverse this curse. And Haven has to make order in her chaotic dwelling um, and discovers some pretty strange magic in the process herself. This is a little bit Cersei for me, a little bit Howl's Moving Castle maybe. Um, It definitely sounds incredibly charming and as always with Juniper Butterworth like something you've never read before and so perfect. Have at it everyone. So you can find Bewitched on 
Kindle Unlimited. Um, it's available there as an ebook, and we hope that you will check it out because it has forced proximity, slow burn, and a little bit of enemies to beloveds. So thank you to Juniper Butterworth for sponsoring this week's episode. Can I just say also about my current series, Hell's Bells and Prologues? So mm-hmm. I often do not write my prologue until the very end yeah. of the book. Um, and that is for lots of reasons, but mainly because I don't believe that every book needs one. And yeah. so often the question, like at some point over at around like 70% of the book, I think, oh, no, it does need a prologue and this is what it should be. Hell's Bells, a bombshell begins with the moment that uh, Duchess finds, well, I mean – Spoiler, everyone. Bombshell begins with the moment that, like, that the heroine becomes a Hell's Bell, joins the club. And then uh, Heartbreaker also begins with the moment that the heroine finds the club. Knockout does not. And one of the reasons why it doesn't is because you, you don't need it. You don't need to see that moment from Imogen because she is – she has never not been Imogen, Right. Right. Yeah. There is no there is no origin story to Imogen. Imogen was born that way. And so when she was found and brought into Hell's Bells, it wasn't because she had done something. She didn't have to be summoned. Like she <laughs> it's, she walked into a room one day and yeah, that was, that. was like, "Would you like to join my club?" She was like, "Yes." And Imogen was like, "Let me get my bag full of bomb making stuff." Yeah. Tommy so boom. Well, that's a different episode. But the, yes. yes. So the point, but the point is that, like, it's okay. And I really fussed. I wrote a whole pro. I did actually write a prologue for this book. Um, and I left it. You know, I gave it to my editor and I was like, I don't know what to do. I feel like it's redundant in a lot of ways. And she was like, yeah, it is. Let's leave it then. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really cool. It's okay. I'm giving everybody out there permission. Write them or don't write them. Yeah. I but mean, definitely it's... read them. Read them for sure. Okay. So epilogues on the other hand i will admit i and i listen i read every single minute with these motherfucking people you're gonna give me but i do understand and i think a lot of it has to do with the baby log which i can't decide if we should just get out of the way and talk about it talk about the end okay i mean uh, yeah whatever you want no let's talk about at the end because i don't want to get i don't want to get drowned in babies (laughs) yes okay so i also made a list of things that i think good epilogues do or the ones that are most interesting to me are also they're fan service, but they're kind of doing things in an interesting way. So here's what I have is my little list. Um, bringing the whole gang back together. So it's like in a series epilogue, sometimes you get everybody, all of the, right? Sure. True fan service. Absolutely. Everyone at Christmas wearing like holiday sweaters. Sitting around and drinking mead. Um in a single point of view book, sometimes you get the other yeah. love interest point of view mm-hmm. in the epilogue. Um, the dreaded baby log. That's what I wrote, but we'll talk about that later. Um, I mean, fast- not dreaded for all of us, but yeah, yes. Not, well, exactly. I We'll talk about it. Um, fast forwarding in time to show like the HEA fulfilled, right? And I think that's like a subset this of the baby log. This is a big log. one, yeah, yeah. Right? And then... Surprise, motherfuckers, which is what I would call the epilogue of No Good Duke Goes Unpunished, for example. <laughs> That's well, literally. We'll, let's put a pin on in that and we'll talk about it later. Because I actually don't think that many of us do surprise mother- motherfuckers. I think that's no. a thing that is like, I think McLean readers are used to it and other people are not. 
So yeah, let's start with surprise motherfuckers because you're right. Very few people do it, but you did it. And I... But it does happen. Yeah. I only imagine people were like, oh, shit. Yeah, it is my greatest joy every time I get an email about that book. (laughs) It is. I mean, and I still get emails about that. Listen, if you like to be surprised and you have not read the Casino series, skip forward to the next chapter. Yeah. How about that? Because we'll just talk about this. Yes. Um. Yeah, surprise, motherfuckers, is when you are writing a series. I love this. This is new. Uh, is when you are writing a series and then you have a big grand plan for the final book or the next book or whatever, and you're keeping the secret from the reader. And um, in my case, I once wrote a series that was set in a casino and it was owned by four very powerful men who um, were – who had fallen, like had all had access to like money and power and title and then uh, lost it all. And they s- created a casino and then they became like the richest scoundrels in London. Sure, of course. And it was amazing. And there were four of them. And the most powerful of them was uh, named Chase. They all had one single. They, had, they all had one name that they went by. And uh, the fourth hero's name was Chase. And throughout the first three books, sure. never Chase a hint. was just machinating. I mean, there were lots of hints. You just, you know, I don't know what to say. <laughs> on the way back, on the on the second read, you're like, oh, shit. The hints were not like wink, wink, nudge, nudge hints. No. Right? Does that make sense? Like, no. It, they were there, but not in any way like a... No. You would have to be an incredibly close reader to see it. Um, and for three books, I kept a very big secret, which was that Chase was not, in fact, a man. She was a woman, and everyone in the whole world knew. Like every, yeah. I mean, I mean, nobody. No, I should say the wide world did not know. Like she was, she was basically right. Spartacus, right? Like she was like, she was like a mythological figure, um, uh, who you know was held, or rather, the Wizard of Oz, like behind the curtain. But like all of the people that you have been in the point of view with for the entirety of the book knew that she was a woman, and you just never. I never used a, pro- a pronoun, which was really fun to write. You knew all along. I knew. Oh, I knew all. I've known. I had known at that point since like s- two books even prior to that series what it, what was going to happen. And then, um, but the point is about that that uh, epilogue wise, um, I knew, and this goes to your fan service thing. I oh, I love a prologue that tees up the next book. Yes. An epilogue that tees up the I'm next sorry, book. I'm sorry, an epilogue that te- yes. tees up the next book. I love an epilogue where you are given like a mic drop ending and immediately have to run and get the next one. And I love that as a writer, obviously. Like I want everybody to buy the next book. But I love that as a reader when I'm like, holy shit, it's happening. This is happening. Just so you know, everybody, Knockout has a surprise motherfucker's ending. <laughs> I mean, I try now... I try to do that with every with every series now. Like the second to last book delivers you a Something, punch yeah. at the end. Yeah. Um so but what's interesting is we at that book No Good Duke Goes Unpunished has an has a baby log. Yes. And then we redacted in the arcs no reviewers got the final bit of the oh really of the so they just thought they were reading that's they're in the arcs it literally like it says the you know the final portion of this book has been redacted until wow um 
you know, whatever the date, the release date was, because we didn't want it to get out that. Yeah, of course. Because we knew it was such a big secret. That's um, cool. Which was really fun. And, and HarperCollins let me do it. And it was really nice. But the point is, yeah. So I think I do it. I think I don't, you don't see it very often. You see what it essentially is, which is here's who the next book is. Well, right? and we've talked about this. And I think it's because when we talked about series, so few people do not really envision series the same way that you do. Right. I mean, in order to have the like, surprise motherfuckers ending you have had you you must have been plotting come on a throughout with me right exactly through those books and often you know even when people sell a series they aren't really thinking of it as being plotted the same way so right and i think but i do think like i think paranormal does it paranormal does it i think probably that's where you'd find it yeah, I mean, a bit, it's what it is, what it takes is trusting that readers are going to come with you on a journey, right? Right. And at the beginning of your career, you don't have that feeling, right? Like, of course not. Any of your career, you're like anything could happen between now and the next book. Now I sort of know, like, if I am writing a series, the publisher's going to let me write the whole series, right? Right. So, um, so that's that. We sh- that's enough of me. Um, but let's. What do you want to talk about next? Well, I want to save baby log. So let's talk about um, – I don't even know if we have to talk about uh, bringing the gang back together. I can't really think of any. I know they're out there. Like, I just feel like that's like a, kite, a type sure, of – Sure. It's a wedding. You said it. Yes. Like, it's a wedding. It's a Can wedding. Can we talk it's about a, a, an epilogue that I really like, which is uh, there has been trauma that has caused internal conflict through the whole book. Yeah. And that trauma – has to be resolved emotionally over the course of the book and is often the source of the third act breakup and is often the source. Like, yes. yes. We've seen it come back again and again and again in different ways. And then we see in the epilogue the proof that that trauma has been Yes. The overcome. promise, the HEA fulfilled is that one, right? Yeah. Okay. So the one that always comes to mind for me with this is actually a Julia Quinn epilogue, which is the epilogue of the Viscount Who Loved Me. And the premise of the Viscount Who Loved Me uh, is his dad died at 38 years old of a bee sting. Yes. Right. So, like, there's a lot of this is where, like, sucking the venom out of her breast. <laughs> like, there's, look, this book is only Julia Quinn could make this I book. I really work. love It's my favorite <laughs> so, of that whole series. Because it's great. Cause I he's love it so much. A big dummy. And this. Anyway, so whatever. You've all seen Bridgerton season two. The book is excellent and worth a read. Um, the, But the epilogue of this book, he, and he's terrified. He's terrified he's going to die young. Like he, mm-hmm. is, he is traumatized by the death of his father. The epilogue of this book is the day of his 39th birthday. Right? I know. Yes. And it feels like yeah, this so is exactly the day that it should be. Right. And I thought aloud about that book when I was writing the epilogue of Day of the Duchess, where the trauma of Day of the Duchess. Ta- I mean, this is, we're going to get into baby log, too. We're not going to be able to avoid it here. But the trauma of Day of the Duchess is, you know, they have, you know, their relationship has really suffered over many years because, you know, they, they lost a child. And then I was like, oh, my God. How like what do I do? How do I show 
you know, what is the right day right. for the epilogue? Right. And in that case, it was, I remember sitting down and thinking, well, it can't be the birth of their first child because that's a traumatic experience, right? Like terrifying. And then it, you know, it it just felt like there were like a whole series of things where I, I like sort of leapt ahead to the proper day for that for that epilogue. And I thought a lot about the Viscount who loved me when I did that. Like, what is the right day? What is the 39th birthday? Yeah. Um, in George Yellow Long, it's Levi's birthday party, right? Mm-hmm. And he has been um and I don't think it's like a secret, like Kate and I, this is something this is like the one thing I sort of help Kate with, and I think it's probably okay for me to say that. And it was like we had like and she was really like, who's like when you have a a book that's dual point of view. It's also like a really interesting question, like whose point of view should the epilogue be in, right? Because it's kind of like you kind you have to pick one. And so she ended up doing it in Levi's point of view and it's his own birthday party. And here's a man who's been like cut off from his entire family, right? Mm-hmm. For like these reasons. And now he's like, all these people are there for him. And it's very... It's like what you needed, right? Like, again, the promise of the H.A. fulfilled because so much of his trauma was about his family and like being, you know what I mean? The way that he was cut off from them and and Georgie like kind of bringing that back for him. And it's really beautifully done, right? So sometimes I think authors have to think too about like, okay, so if I have a dual point of view, who is the one that the characters most need that reassurance of, like healing and happiness and all of that in the epilogue. And I think it's like really interesting to think about, um, you know, you have to make a hard decision there. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, point of view is really, really difficult. But that, but you're 100% right that the very best, the best of them, the best point of view is the opposite point of view. If you've been in a single point of view the whole time. Well, so here's a couple examples. Now, in George L. Long, it's dual, right? So it's like just choosing which one. But Right. So my favorite example of this is actually the Hidden Legacy series. So it's all third person, but the main every book is like there's, a, you know, a set of three books that follows the same couple. And in in both series, it's the sister that is like the main point of view character and then the epilogue is in like the hero's point of view so you get mad rogan's point of view for a couple of books just in the epilogue and then you get um alessandro segredo's point of view in the second set of three books and i think that's like a really you know again but that to me is like the very definition of fan service right like oh it's, yeah because you know what i mean want. it's all you want that- just like that like i'm so wildly in love with her holy shit right so yeah. it's really interesting to think about that because it is there, you know, because I think the thing that's hard, the needle you have to thread there is, well, if you were willing to give me his point of view for this fucking epilogue, why weren't you willing to do it for the whole book, right? But there's reasons for it. And it's interesting, right? Yeah. Jana Aston has a really good one that's like that where you're in the her POV the whole time and then it flips to him at the end. And it's just that like, I mean, talk about fan service. Yeah. I mean, like you're just like, oh, look how much he loves her. It's amazing. You're like, yes. <laughs> that's how I am. Yeah. 
This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Adriana Herrera, author of An Island Princess Starts a Scandal, which is a perfect read all the time, but especially in Pride Month. This is so good. Okay. (laughs) Manuela, who is the second of Las Leonas, this is the series that, that the historical series that Adriana is writing, is in Paris to show her paintings at the 1889 World's Fair. And she's there with her two best friends. And after this, she's intending to go back to South America and to enter into a loveless marriage. She's not unhappy about this. This is just the way life is. Um, But she will be damned if she's going to leave Paris without experiencing some of this kind of Parisian excitement and passion and, uh, you know. Freedom. Freedom, yeah. And sexy freedom, though. I mean, this is an Adriana book, so it's definitely sexy freedom. A plus. So she finds herself... One of my very favorite beginnings ever of anything. She finds herself into in a sex club uh, that specializes in the ladies and stumbles upon a woman uh, who a mysterious woman who she instantly is drawn to. Of course, the next day she has a business meeting because Manuela also has a piece of land that is very critical to for romance reasons, um, a very valuable piece of land in South America. And she meets with Cora Bristol, the Duchess of Sundridge, um, known for ruthlessness in business. And lo and behold, Jennifer. What do you think happened? Would you believe that the Duchess of Sundridge is also the person who wants to buy Manuela's land? Anyway, you guys, (laughs) I'm burying the lead because this is a sex deal book. Mamuela says, I'll give you my land if you give me one summer in hot, sexy lesbian Paris. And the Duchess says, all right, I can definitely stay out of love with you while we do this. Of course. Of course. Man, watching this woman fall is terrific. It is a delicious book that makes me just want to live inside it. You can get An Island Princess Starts a Scandal in print, ebook, and audio anywhere books are sold. Force proximity, grumpy sunshine, and all of the sexy lesbian Paris you can handle. That's our promise to you. Thanks to Adriana for sponsoring this week's episode of Faded Mates. In the love hypothesis, is there like a bonus epilogue? Oh, ah, let's talk about bonus epilogues because yeah. these are really interesting, right? So right. there are bonus epilogues in multiple Ali Hazelwood books, but also like lots of people have done bonus epilogues, yeah. right? And often from the alternate POV and usually to si- get you to sign up for their newsletter. This is a real indie um indie uh author trick and it's a good one um and i think that they're really interesting because they are 100 percent like fan service i did a combo epilogue once where it was like bridging now i can barely remember but it was like all the characters from uh the casino series together and then it bridged to the bare knuckle bastards. Um, and so it was, and I, you know, it was like sign up for my newsletter and you can get this thing. And so I think, but I think that that really is about like, do you yes. really love these characters yes. right. or not? Um, I'm trying to think about epilogues that really do work though, right? 
it does feel like the 39th birthday ep- epilogue, but it's like it's not it's not quite what I'm looking for, but what it is doing is showing you that it's all okay. Yeah, okay. I actually have my favorite epilogue probably of all time. Tell me. Is Lorraine Heath, you're not going to be surprised. No, cuz she's the best. In the Duchess Hunt. So in this book everybody there's this reveal, it's kind of spoilery, that the heroine, who is his, like, secretary, um, when she was a teenager, in order to, like, save her family from poverty, agreed to essentially be photographed in the nude. Mm. And she is, and this is, you know, very early in photographs, so he is, like, sort of making it, by the end, it's, like, his goal that he's, like, I promises her he's going to, like, destroy them. Right. There's not like negatives floating around. Right. There's this limited number of prints and he's going to destroy them. And then then you get sort of this like regular old epilogue of them doing whatever, being happy. And then the last couple paragraphs, it's 2021. And <gasps> Brandon Brimsley Norton, the 15th Duke, has just received a delivery from Sotheby's of the last remaining photograph of the fallen angel. I have shills telling you this. I'm sorry, everybody, please write. And he doesn't look in it, but it has been the charge of every Duke since that one to find and destroy these photographs. And I like, listen, I was laid out. the fucking best of us. And why more people don't read her books? I like, I want it to be the charge of every person who follows me and my family. Like. Our family vendetta is to get people to read Lorraine Heath. I'm not going to. I This is a book, and I don't know if I've talked about this book. I really have come to think this book is so brilliant over time. I kind of struggled with it at first because they're both keeping secrets, and hers is, like, nowhere near as big as his. And she is so, like, just consumed with it. And then I was like, oh, shit, it's because of the fucking patriarchy, right? Like, but the ending of this book where he basically was like, I don't give a shit what you do, my descendants. You will find you and destroy these. Job. You've isn't that amazing? It's fucking great. Oh, it only is Lorraine. only Lorraine. She's the best. The best thing I have God damn it. ever That's fucking so read. Good. It's so good. I'm Sarah. never gonna write that. But you know what? Here's <laughs> what I was thinking. I think so many authors would be afraid to do it because to you're tacitly it through. You're, and you're tacitly admitting that these people have died. I know that sounds so dumb, right? Oh, but Lorraine like, doesn't care about that shit. Yeah, like, care. we all died. know that they're dead, but, like... No, so good. But not, but not dead. She always figures it out. This is not the first character she's killed in an epilogue. And she, what she does, she's so good at the fucking job. It makes me crazy. <laughs> she, he's not dead. He's right there. Yeah. He's right there. Still, they're the right most, there. Still a king. Still a king. Fifteen <laughs> fucking generations later, like he's like, you have a cell phone, and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, find and destroy these photos if you find them. Like, isn't that unreal? Brilliant. Amazing. Literally, brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, that's it. So good. Here's I will say, and I don't want to name names because you know we don't really necessarily do that here. I think one of the ways an epilogue can fail is if you show that these characters need to do some work in order to be happily ever after. Wait, 
What does that mean? Say more about that. Because Meaning, like, I'm trying to think of, like, a book in particular, right? Like, the they're not ready. They're not fully formed, right? They're not at happily ever mm. after stage. Mm-hmm. At least to me. Like, they're still too traumatized. They're still, right? Mm-hmm. Like, whatever it is. And the books I'm thinking of, it's, like, various different things. There's, I, I have three in my head. I'm not going to name them. And then it's kind of like, okay, well, now it's 16 months later or two years later and don't worry everything's fine like mm-hmm. they've recovered that does not work for me yes okay that is that is what i'm talking about about a book where the book is not complete and they try to listen All right. yes there are ways there are things that have to be tied up in an epilogue sometimes right mm-hmm. yeah. god knows i write a gigantic book right so often by the time i get to the end of the actual book there is still one piece of information, say, or one thing that needs to come out, right? Okay. So, for example, in Heartbreaker, uh, there is a moment where there is there is a, do- a literal document, a piece of paper. No one cares. If for romance reasons, this piece of paper existed in the in the book, and it needed to get back into the hands of the hero, and there was just no graceful way to do that. To get that document back into the hands of the hero during the book proper. The heroine was a thief and she had pickpocketed that document at in the final chapter of the book. But like there just was no moment in the writing, in the pacing of that chapter where I could be like, oh, and pause. Here's this document back. Right. So she actually returns. It's it's weird. I've never written. A, I've. This I, this is also a birthday epilogue, which is not uncommon. I don't feel like birthday epilogues are super common, but we've talked about a bunch Here of them. Here we are. It's fine. Anyway, it's the hero's birthday and she gives it back to him, right? So in that moment, the epilogue is doing something, right? It's tying up one final thread that readers might be like, well, wait a second. Whatever happened to that thing, right? Right. And it ties it up and she gives it to him as a birthday gift in that epilogue. However... There's nothing about that that it was related to their character development, their journey into love, their, you know, path into happy, happily ever after. It's literally just a piece of paper that has to get from one person to another. When the happily ever after requires additional plot to solve it, that is not an epilogue, in my opinion. Yes. Agree. And... I all I literally I said this at the beginning of the episode. I read a book today and I was like, and the epilogue required the the hero's trauma was not resolved. Yes. At the end of the book. And then in the epilogue, it is resolved. And exactly felt. And in this case, it wasn't like it had been elided. Time was not elided. It literally, like, at the beginning of the epilogue, he still had the problem. And then by the end of the epilogue, he didn't. Yeah. And it was a struggle for me because that's not what an epilogue is for, in my opinion. You're like, how the hell did that happen? Right. And, like, what? why didn't we use the runway? (laughs) Right. Like, why didn't we use the whole runway? So, um, you know, it's this is tricky because it also feels – I also sometimes hear in the ether – and the writing ether that like no section of the book should be on page if it doesn't if it's not relevant to the book and i don't agree with that either right i think fan, uh, well i do think this is a romance thing in the sense that like nobody does fan service like we do yes yes 
But I think people need to understand the difference between fan service and like plots. Right? Like yeah, I can't blogs are not for plot. No. And that's I think like the real mistake is when you get those books where you're just like, okay, wait. I mean, here's the other thing. I think the promise of like this is like real old school, everybody. Think back to when you were in like eighth grade. And your your you know your character your teacher talked about like dynamic characters right characters who change. Mm-hmm. The promise I think of every romance novel is that all the love interests are dynamic characters, right? They are people that are changing. Being in love is going to change these people. Yeah. And when you but your job is to show that change in the main portion of the book. And if your if whatever change needs to happen is going to happen in between the last page of the book and the beginning of the epilogue, you have not done your job. Well, you just haven't finished it. You haven't finished yeah. the book. No. You need more chapters. Yeah, or like and that probably means you started in the wrong place. Ah, uh, well, there is that right? too. We didn't talk about that back in prologues, but yeah, that's often I think yeah, prologues are often just like a clearing throat chapter. Yeah, but right? I mean, you can't just say, oh, don't, wor- don't worry, it's all fixed. Because the promise of romance is that these people, we're going to see enough of them changing to really, truly believe that they are going to keep on this path. Yes. Well, and that's where it's interesting, right? Because one of the things that I think indie, short indie contemporaries like sexy short contemporaries yeah. in indie i'm thinking about jessa kane and alexa yeah. riley and yeah. others in that sort of very tight twenty thousand word yes you know right. format you get to like 80 percent of the book or the story and it is finished yeah and then you get 20 percent more of like Two years later, five years later, 10 yeah, years right. later, like 20 years later. And it's interesting because I remember the first time I ever like got to that in a book. I was like, this feels weird. Yeah. Like, what's why happening do we need here? two of these? <laughs> but or five of these. Like, why do you need so many epilogues? And then I went on Goodreads at one point and I don't know what I was looking at, but it was like there was a review and the it was one of those really comprehensive, you know, there are some reviewers on, Gr- on Goodreads who are amazing and they like do these big comprehensive reviews. And then it's like, I'm going to give you the stars and then how many sex scenes there are and like whether or not there's like another person on like either of these characters have had another relationship on page. Like it's like, you know, a list of things. And one of the things that it was listing is number of epilogues. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hang on a second. Again, pure fan service, right? Like, it's just so that we can see, oh, they're happy in a year, they're happy in five years. They are still wild for each other. In these books, they've never had a night when they haven't when they haven't wanted to have sex. Well, you know when they don't do that is when he's 50 and she's 20, and 20 years from now, he's 70. <laughs> Shut up. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> they, don't, so, they don't. That's where they, listen, they have realized that the Jen, plausible deniability has last flown night right out the window. My daughter, this is a real pause. We're going back to banter for a second. <laughs> Last night I took my daughter to The Little Mermaid live <laughs> yeah. action. Javier Bardem is King Triton in this movie. God. And literally at one point I was like, this man is like pure daddy. Like he's <laughs> pure daddy. He's 
so perfect casting, Sarah. Rough and like mad at her for going to the surface. (laughs) And I'm like, (gasps) just give me King Triton in his own movie. I just want all the Triton fic there is. (laughs) I want what is it called when when Allie and Adriana are shouting now, but. I want that thick where it's like self-insert. I just want me and King Triton. <laughs> I want him yelling at me about this. It's surface. real wet, Sarah. So wet. So wet. <laughs> Wowzer. Uh, I mean, I'm feeling warm now. But anyway, the movie was fine, but go for Triton. Hilarious. You know, <laughs> anyway, that's, yeah. so where did I even I got distracted? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just saying like it is interesting, right? Like those, yeah. And they're still hot for each other yeah. forever. Well, that's like an, that's and all those books are really delivering, nice right? And so it makes sense that the that the epilogues deliver that, right? Like I think that's the other thing is like the epilogue is really is like a start as you mean to go on type of scenario, right? And so if the premise of the book is like these two are just hot for each other, then that's what the epilogue needs to tell you, right? And I think this is where we can transition to talking about the baby log, which some people do not like. Let's just set this. Let's just talk about that for a second. Some people do not like it because it's super. I mean, like it's heteronormative. Oh, my God. Yes. Right. And it also, aside from being heteronormative, it gives you a sense of like the nuclear family being the only happily ever The only family. right? Right. So it's also like patriarchal. It has like it. It layers all of that shit that, like, we are all born with. Sure. You know, into the epilogue. Um, and I want to say, I meant to sort of name this, but there are us. There are several. Now we are seeing more and more books where characters openly do not want to have children on page during the romance. And in many of those cases, we see an epilogue that is several years in the future, and it is delivering that promise, right? Where, um, you know, the Joanna Shoup's um, sure Prince of Broadway series, right? Exactly, the Uptown Girls, it's right? Uptown Girls. It is it the Devil of Downtown that's Florence. No, the the Prince of Broadway is Florence. Prince right. of Broadway is, is Florence. So, and Florence is one of children. And then over the course of the rest of the book, of the rest of the books in the series, we see her sisters. And, you know, her and she doesn't have children like her happily ever after does not include children. And that is great. Um, You know, I wrote a heroine who did not want to have children. I wrote an epilogue for her. She does not end up pregnant. Like she is just she does not want to have children. They are not going to have children. So um, those kinds of epilogues are really valuable. You know, Kate Claiborne's children uh, characters do not have children in their epilogues. Although, I know, oh, I meant to say this when you were talking about, I don't know, something. But uh, the one thing that I do think is really interesting that's happening in in contemporary epilogues right now, and then Adriana's written it, Kate's written it, is like characters going to therapy. Yeah. Right? Characters like ha- appreciating that there is still work to do on their relationship. My favorite of the american books by adriana like in the final is uh the one with the black lives matter activist and it's an american American love story story, i think yeah yeah american love story where in the in the epilogue like they are still going to like they're going to therapy every day or every week right like because they have so much to work out so i I just wanted to 
name that too as a really valuable epilogue. But anyway, now babies, I'll leave you to it. My guess is that although there is like a small vocal contingent of people who are like, I hate this. I think a lot of people really like it. Oh, yeah. If you, yeah. If you write one and there is no baby, you get letters. Right. So, I mean, I think it's just like one of those things where like the way those voices are heard is different, right? The public voice is no baby logs, but I think the private voice is like, no, I really like this. Um, And I think the thing that is interesting is like, I think the people that like it like the idea of it being the future. Happily ever after means forever. The 16th duke of whatever yes, is going to right, be there right and again i would i would like to say everybody this is not real right in real life there, there like no judgment on people who decide to have kids or not this is not about your legacy right but i think in a book it's a way for people to hang on to like these characters um in a historical i think it's also really interesting because that shit's dangerous. Like having babies is well, it's true now, right? Having mm-hmm. babies is so dangerous. And there's something about like knowing that they didn't have access to like reliable birth control. Yeah. That for me, I'm like, okay, pregnancy happened and she's okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't, that's. Right? Like, I don't know how else to describe that, That's how it really works for me. That's really that you're framing it that way. Yeah. I mean, I do think there is something to – in historicals, there is – there's a lot – there's so much to unpack about historicals, right? But one of the things that you see over and over again in historicals is, like, the classic idea of, like, I need an heir, right? Like, I need an heir is a basic plot. I mean, it is – it is the fake relationship of the historicals, right? Like, and – and so at the end, I mean, he needs an heir. Yeah, this is your job, literally, right? Um, you know, there is something really lovely about I need an heir. Well, I don't want to have children. Well, okay, neither do I, really. And so we just live our happily ever after and, like, some distant cousin gets it, right? But so there's that, right? There's, like, the the the, the netting out of the plot. Um, you know, I think it's also a little bit not to sort of harp on Derek Craven again. Oh my God, I was going to say we but better talk about Derek Craven. But it's a little bit Craven in the sense that you want to see the like rough. I can't yes. love. I've <laughs> ruined. I family is not for me. I'm going to be yes. a terrible father. I mean, like again, listen. I'm I'm listing every patriarchal, like heteronormative, nonsensical argument that 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 uh uh romance heroes have ever spoken right but like there's a reason why we come back to those things as catnip it's it's patriarchy but the um but we come back to it over and over again and so we like it when like finally they're like wait a second family i can love not only can i love you i can also it wasn't a one-off i can do it all these other creatures who are now running around my house um I love a ba- I'm like an unabashed baby log lover and I am not an unabashed baby lover <laughs> in life so um you also know. I mean that's the other thing in historical often it's like you know these are rich people who get to like shuffle off the babies to the fucking nanny great good job everybody I really I love a I want to say for some reason I really love a one of my favorite tropes in in baby logs is 
hero finally is allowed in the like wants to get into the birthing room. Oh God, yes. And then the I doctor like, this is women's work. Yeah, and the doctor's like, no, and he's like, I'm getting in there. Um, you know, amazing. I want to hold her while this happens. Like, this is us together. Woof, I love that. And then, of course, there's, like, the classic. Is it the Stephanie Lawrence? Is it um, is it Devil's Bride where the epilogue is her in labor and he's downstairs with all his friends? Yeah. And they're, like, telling him all the terrible ways that, like, birth can go. And he's just, like, freaking the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah. There Completely. is there are lots of ways that over the years writers have played with gender roles in this particular kind of epilogue. You know, I I don't know. It's also the last like kaboom of like big emotion, a big emotional surprise for a hero often like I'm pregnant. Right. I'm a yeah, I'm a father. I um yeah, I here's what I will say. I don't I'm agnostic about the baby log. I certainly would never be like, wait, where is it? And then when it happens, I'm like, that seems nice. I think the other reason I like a baby log, everybody, maybe you could get into this space, is I don't enjoy children as characters in romance novels. (laughs) (laughs) So I just feel like, but romance is is about family, right? And so it's kind of like- Quote, right, I'm making air quotes, right? So this is a way in which a lot of people do make a family, like literally by having kids. And I like that it's just like not something I have to really fucking deal with. Here's yeah. a good example. Um, if you've read, okay, I'm going to get these titles wrong. It's like The Secret, oh, The the Secret Life of Kit Webb and the Perfect Crimes of Marion Hayes were like a, not really a duology because it's different couples in each book by Cat Sebastian. But the um, they're very tightly tied together as plot. And Marion has given birth but doesn't really want to be a mother. Mm. And at the end, in the epilogue of Marion's book, which is the second book, it's very much implied that the, the gay couple from the first book, Kit Webb and – God, I'm spacing out on the other guy's name – kid and it doesn't matter um that they're gonna mostly be parenting the baby while marion and rob who's her um lover are gonna kind of not and essentially it's like the you know there are two separate couples and this baby is gonna tie them together in ways and they like are like kind of like a band of thieves which is a very common cat sebastian trope but marion is not in this group of people expected to be the mother just because she is the mother. And I thought it was really fantastic, like really interesting the way it was done. Um, even though a lot of the book I was like, wait, where's that baby? <laughs> right. But it's well, really that's the downfall of having a baby in your book. Well, of course, because like, you're somebody deal with the fucking baby. There's like a wet nurse and stuff. So I but I just thought it was again like historical is now doing so much more, you know, not just heroines like wild rain and and um fuck yeah florence who just don't want kids but then also like really truly innovative like again like um you know non-heteronormative like this group of people is gonna raise this baby and marion is not tied to this role just because she's the one woman in the group right so 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I think about, I think now there are so many ways that the, quote, baby log is happening in romance in different innovative ways. Like, um, you know, we talked about Delilah Green doesn't care recently on on the podcast, but one Claire, one of the heroines of that book, is a single mom. And so family finds itself yeah. in that blog in a different way, right? Like Delilah is not going to, you know, necessarily have her own, like, create a child from her body but she is going to love this other child well and sometimes i feel like the dislike of the baby log is really the dislike of like the miracle pregnancy and we should talk about that because i have written a i've written a pregnancy that comes after baby like about after after loss um yeah i mean the miracle pregnancy is it's rough man i mean like it is a it is a real you are you are in a pickle you are in a pickle in a historical it is not safe for you in a historical if they if the character believes that they are not uh that they are not able to have children like it it's just flatly not safe for you in there <laughs> and the reality is and that is not true always like there are certainly some writers who have written a character who cannot have children knows they cannot have children and does not have children right but we, I think many, many, many of us, speaking for widely for historical writers, have written at some point or another a character who believes that they are not able to have a child and then is able to have a child. And that is because medicine. Well, that's how I read it. In 1820, knew These nothing. These are quacks. Like, they were also going to blood you and put leeches on you. So what the uh -huh. fuck did they know, right? I mean, yeah. but I should say, wait a second. It's <laughs> not really uh, that... Somebody out there is calling me on my bullshit, and they should be, because that is how I to told myself yeah. I was going to write it, like, that this was a situation where a quack doctor, and it's on page, that he says, you'll never have another child, right? Um, and I knew medically what had happened, and I knew medically that she could have another child. But I do think there are a lot of us who... Like, love is magic. Right. Right. It's true. Right. I don't... I, woof. That sucks, and I'm sorry, everyone. Yeah. It's I not mean, and safe. I think and it's not safe. Listen, it's not safe in... I said... I, I blamed historicals, because it, it is a very common thing in historicals, but it's not safe in contemporaries either. Yeah. Well, and I think that this is a place where... For me, I think the power then of like social media or whatever to hear kind of an upswell of people saying like, this is actually not great. This is a little harmful. This is, yeah, you know, let's about it differently now. Yeah. And I think that there's a way in which like different authors interacting with single readers couldn't really like see that. And so I do feel like there's a lot of romance authors who probably are making different choices now than they would make you know, however many years ago. And I really wish this is like one of those questions where I wish we could go back to like all of our trailblazers and say or ask, like, were you told you had to write a baby log? Were you, you know, I mean, it used to be that it used to be every contemporary ended with a proposal or an actual fucking wedding. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't enough to have the HEA just be like, we're together and we're happy. So I do think there are ways and like, these are like kind of the global ways I think we're seeing romance make big changes or right? also seeing like families shift like romance reflects how many times have we said this right romance reflects the world in which it is written and like the shape of the modern family is evolving 
more quickly, I would think, now than it has ever been before. And that is not to say that families didn't look the way that they look, you know, when we were young or when our parents were young or when, you know, 50 years ago when Kathleen Woodaways wrote The Flame and the Flower. But it is to say that, like, the look, the way families look and are built and are knitted together and are accepted in the world and are, like, treated in the world is getting better. Yeah. Um, and so I think romance is, you know, always going to be a little bit behind on any of these issues that feel like they're entrenched in patriarchy um, because we are as a as a genre entrenched in patriarchy and just like everybody else is. Yes. Welcome to the world, everybody. Um, but I do think there are very cool examples of books where that is not the case. There is there is no baby at the end. And it's and what I would say, I know everybody out there is going like, well, give us an example. And what I would say is there are so many. Yeah, now. it's not even yeah, um, exactly. You know, we we talked about, you know, Jen said Wild Brain, you know, my bombshell, uh, Prince of Broadway. Um, Sophie Jordan just wrote one. The I'll put it we'll put it in the in the images. I can't remember which one it was. Adriana's books. In historical, it feels more like, oh, wow, right? Like, I've noticed this. These are like the... You can see it. Modern historicals just are... You can see us... I mean, this is not about epilogues and prologues, but you can see the historical genre is literally, like, shifting. The bones are cracking. We're like... Right. We're trying to figure out what we look like now. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I love it when I... Big dumb man is brought low by childbirth. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> like look at what you look at what we have to do. Now feel bad. <laughs> Go buy our present. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, nobody loved being a dad like Derek Craven. Listen. Derek Baby Craven. Lydia. They just was like well, what a Derek Craven liked other things about being a dad too. <laughs> that's that's an adult everybody's feeding joke, everyone. Thanks for coming, everyone. Well, they listened last week if they weren't there. And so now they're like, whoo. Oh, yeah. There it is. 911. We should have done adult breastfeeding as this week's interstitial, except I think Eric would divorce me. He'd be like, no, I now we're I would divorce done. you. Like, I think it's too much. <laughs> uh, you know, my friend Ernie, who's like my, like, he will listen yeah, to the podcast yeah, yeah. and he literally sent me Hi, a text. Ernie. He's always a little behind and he's like, why did I just listen to like you guys talking about adult breastfeeding for like fifteen minutes in some in the episode with the uh, the milk one that we talked about? And, and I was like, "Sorry, Master Cafe." Yeah, welcome for welcome welcome to the ride. Welcome to I the mean, show. <laughs> listen, everybody should feel very grateful that it took us five years to get here. True, we could have been doing this long ago. We, I, I'm really impressed with us for not asking uh, Sandra Brown about it. God, I know. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, the I don't way think I if could. one of us had said it, the other one would have just like immediately <laughs> logged off of Zoom. Just like, I'm I don't know. Sorry, my computer I crashed. I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> That's like, I don't even know what that would be in the Muppet universe. <laughs> Statler okay. and Waldorf. Uh, too much. What'd you do with the nursing down there, Sandra? <laughs> no. Let's, we're going to let that go. All right, everyone. Um, Listen, what do we want to say? We want to say we have a Patreon now. And that Patreon comes with a Discord, uh, which is super duper fun, uh, where you can talk about things like epilogues and prologues every day of the week if you want, all hours of the day. There's someone on there 24-7 who wants to talk to you about romance novels, and that is 
a great thing. Um, sometimes if you join our Discord, you get an extra episode of the podcast. Big yeah. surprises, including interviews with our friends and yeah. everybody in the whole um, the first 400 people who joined the Discord all received a gift from us this week by yeah. mail. So exciting yeah. things. Good times, everybody. So join our Discord. Um, Link thing. Oh, fadedmates.com slash Patreon? No, we are no, not. I like com. I like Fa- you can join mates. the Discord at fadedmates.net slash Patreon. Um, no, wait. Not Discord. You can join the Patreon or learn more about it at fadedmates.net slash Patreon. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, who we love very much. You can also support us by supporting them. Have a great week, everybody. And tell us about your favorite or most hated, I guess, prologues and epilogues. Read the prologues. Skip the epilogues if you must. But you should read those, too. They're sometimes very fun. I love them. I would never skip them. Sometimes I put big surprises in them. It's true. All right. Have a great week, everybody.